pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where the possible meets the actual. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and my guest this week is Rachel Handley a teaching fellow in philosophy at Trinity College Dublin and author of a recent collection of sci-fi short stories entitled Possible Worlds and Other Stories. The book is a really fun exercise in multiverse building. Uh, it scratches that meta itch that I had and a lot of others I think have these days, but it also has some really wonderful, lovely, touching human moments. So Rachel, would you like to say hi to the void? Um, yeah, first of all, hi everyone. Um, and to Aaron, thank you so much for having me on the show. I am so looking forward to our chat today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate making all of the all the things work. I know you're really busy uh, with the book and with teaching and stuff. I also know that you've probably spent a good bit of time hanging out with The Void since it is one of your reoccurring figures in the story. I was really excited when our mutual reached out and, and shared and then I got reading and was like, yes, this is very much our wheelhouse. Before we learn about your sort of specific void, though, do you want to like tell folks a bit about your background, what got you into writing science fiction? Uh, yeah, so I think I think like really like the writing science fiction thing ultimately came from like my interest in in philosophy. So, you know, in philosophy, you have all sorts of kind of thought experiments. And I've always kind of written, um, even as a kid, and it was two, two loves kind of um, coming together, really, when I started to kind of write stories that have kind of like a philosophical, like, edge to them. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't really know precisely when it happened, or like when I started to like write, like, properly, in terms of like, prose itself, but I think it does come ultimately from the same side of me that loves philosophy. I think it expresses um, a similar love or something. Yeah. I'm curious, like, were there, I don't know if it's painfully cliche to talk about influences, but were there particular pieces of science fiction, like parts of your like lineage that really hooked you into it as a space to do sort of fun philosophy? The person that really got me into science fiction, like in terms of like authors, uh, was Asimov. Now, I know that Asimov is... A problematic fave. Look- <laughs> no, not exactly. Not exactly awesome when it comes to women characters or like... You, you, you can't like science fiction and not have problematic faves, right? Like... I know he is my problematic fave, right? I, I, oh my god, it's, it's a problem, right? Like all, a lot of the greats <laughs> are really bad. Uh, yeah. There are just so like 
I've been rereading like the Foundation series, which is exactly what got me into science fiction in the first place. And rereading it, there's like when a woman comes onto the page, um, mm-hmm. she's quite literally in the kitchen. It's quite, it's, oh. it's almost hilarious. <laughs> um, but um, as a more of this like a world builder appeals to me in science fiction. That's that's what I really love, and so that's what. I think I ended up like trying to go for my own stuff. I basically just tried to write stuff that would that I would find fun. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so Asimov certainly first person to kind of get me into it. Um, and then once I was reading like his foundation novels, I was like, "Yep, okay, that's it for me. Science fiction is the way to go." <laughs> I'm very sympathetic to this. I was raised a lot on Philip K. Dick, and there are parts of his. You know, things we joke about on Philosophers in Space where it reads like, you know, she like boobed boobily onto the stage kind of thing. Um, and it's it's unfortunately <laughs> yeah. just true that so much of the Golden Age <laughs> is full of, you know, very male gazy, like in, in, you know, in many ways, philosophically advanced and fascinating, like Stranger in a Strange Land is a favorite for me. But it's also just like so horribly male gazy. Um, and I guess I wonder when you're doing your writing, how much are you actively, do you think taking sort of stuff like that into account? So you said, you know, you write stuff that's fun for you. Does that mean stuff that like engages with Mm -hmm. and inverts, you know, these classic problems of science fiction or just like tries to avoid them? Like, how do you, how do you wrestle with that history? Yeah, it's a really good question. So like, I mean, when I, when I write like, the first initial story just comes to me in images. There isn't anything like constructive in my brain kind of going, you need to have this kind of character or this person mm-hmm. in there or whatever. It just comes out of my brain. Um, and even in editing, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm really thinking of that stuff either. Um, I think the, the thing that makes my stories maybe slightly not like that is just because of the perspective I live in every day anyway um so Mm. like a member of the LGBT community I identify as non-binary so if you're writing from that perspective and that's your kind of daily lived life then you kind of like it it comes out in your stories I I would say um in the Mm -hmm. same way that I think like the likes of Asimov writing what they know in terms of culture like i don't think it was right you know that that bizarre like he wouldn't have looked at that and thought this is really sexist like he wouldn't right he would have gone yeah (laughs) this is (laughs) this is this is fine or whatever and like i i think just writing from who i am is going to naturally kind of change the stories um but I also, I don't know that I'm consciously doing that or not. Um, And I don't know Mm -hmm. what the stories would be like if I were to try that or not. I I don't know how much of the male gaze impacts what I'm looking at, but a lot of the characters in in the book are kind of ambiguous, right? There's like, like the, the names of them are usually not gendered too often um and i just assume that all of my characters are bi unless they tell me otherwise so so there's Mm. kind of like a 
yeah I don't know but I'm, I'm still not like I'm not consciously going yeah this um it's it's mm. it's a tough one because I don't think writing is something that can be produced in a very confined way anyway yeah I really do think that to some extent just writing from a like a perspective that has more range of experiences that's learned about more different things that's seen more cultural change doesn't make that easier I also think there is this kind of funny tension in a lot of like the quote-unquote you know golden age of sci-fi stuff where they were being very culturally transgressive again I was recently thinking back through Stranger in a Strange Land which is very for example sexually transgressive in terms of poly open you know except there's so much homophobia in it there's a lot of very weird very explicit like it's right. not okay to kiss other guys stuff and it's like what were you doing Heinlein like you were you so uncomfortable about this idea that you had to stop your incredible utopia sex fantasy to make clear that it wasn't okay in your orgies for the dudes to kiss other dudes? That feels very strange to me. Um, but I also just think that like, no matter where we're at, like how sort of intersectional our identity gets, it can still be, I, you know, I guess I wonder if there's ever situations where you write something and then you realize, Oh wait, this is, this is actually problematic in ways that it wasn't intending or like, do you think about your relationship to things like Afrofuturism and like how is your work kind of intersecting with those particular projects? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really good point. I think that, I mean, in terms of intersecting with those projects, it, it doesn't in a kind of very strict sense because it's not for me to write that kind of sci-fi. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think that I think that like in terms of like my writing I, I am perhaps like a little bit insular about it um, that I still have an enormous amount of, of privilege and I still write from that position mm -hmm. um, I think that there's things that could be done that don't necessarily have to be expressed in the creative side of writing though so like supporting um, members of the science fiction community who are not just white and middle class and so on um, in terms of like looking back on stories and thinking ah no that's that's really problematic I've not had that um, but I don't rule out that that could maybe happen in the future mm -hmm. um, that something that seems normal to us now is going to look horrendous in, in 10 years I, I'm hopeful that that won't be the case um, but you know, who knows? Um, so yeah, um, it's not, it's not, I don't think that being intersectional I, I, in terms of my identity protects me from, from mm -hmm. biases. Um, but I, I do hope it makes me slightly more aware of them and can see them coming. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that um, and this is this is one thing that's um, you know people will say that Asimov's characters are very two dimensional, right? Um, and most of his like novels are kind of plot um, plot pushing mm -hmm. kind of books, which is which is you know something that I love. I love character development, but I also love kind of plot pushing. You're um, a world builder, and I think that in in work that's yeah yeah exactly and and in work like that i think there are going to be differences in 
in how much you can you can do mm. um yeah it's something that mm-hmm. you know i think about but it's it's not something that when i was writing the book i was consciously thinking about i would say probably because i was writing to a deadline at a certain point and <laughs> um, but I think it's something, you know, it's something that's really bit, interesting. So. It's particularly interesting to me because you drew the connection, you mm. know, that I often think of, which is that like science fiction is philosophy with better special effects. And in both cases, we are trying to, mm-hmm. from our limited current perspective, understand the future, whether it's the future of knowledge or the future of culture or the future of, you know, for my for me, ethics, right? Trying to see what ethics will look like. And you know, I wonder if, you know, there, there's some arguments that like doing and reading science fiction and like doing this kind of speculative literacy is in itself a project that helps us get a little bit better at that, right? Slightly ever so better. Like maybe in writing that science fiction story about your, you know, sexual utopian, you know, society, you realize you don't actually think that being gay is bad or something like that, mm. right? Do you feel like you experience that when you're doing this work or when people are sort of communicating to you about your work? Um, I feel like I feel like it could maybe I mean stories certainly have power to open people up to new perspectives. Um I don't think that's a that's a, a power that science fiction has though. I think that that's something that fiction has more generally. Um maybe science fiction can kind of get at certain things that are gonna be tougher to to get right in something like literary fiction um Mm -hmm. but i think that science fiction is is you know is is one vehicle um towards that um that it that it would end up having like some kind of power to to change people's mind i don't know i think there would be maybe a difference, as you were saying, between an author and their writing and a realization of something and um, an audience member, perhaps, um, or a reader. Um, it just seems, I don't, I don't know. I think that to some extent you already have to be open in order to have anything take effect. So you're already writing. So say it's the author here. You're already the author writing about an experience that is maybe slightly out of your wheelhouse. And that helps you realize something about, say, your sexuality. But you were already pushing yourself to write about something outside that. Mm-hmm. So that there was already that kind of motive there. And the, the fiction helped clarify it. It didn't produce it. Mm, it's so. I wonder if there's something like that. Yeah, there's something like that going on where it's like you get into like the mind of this character or you get into thinking in the way that this the people in that particular fictional world think and it kind of clicks with something in your head that you were looking for and you didn't know the shape of yet. Mm, yeah. Um, I think it's a good segue to talk a little bit about your specific book, Possible Worlds and Other Stories. Um, by by way of a little bit, like, I'm curious if you would agree that, like, multiverse is having a moment that, like, as a kind of subgenre of science fiction, multiverse is very hot right now. And, like, 
why you think that might be the case do you have you have any theories about like you know so not just like what drew you to what possible world which i'm curious about as well but like why are why are a lot of people seeming to be really drawn to possible worlds at this point yeah so like the the popularity of of the multiverse is is absolutely huge to the point where even though like my inspiration for it is coming a bit more from the philosophical side um that if i if i'm doing like a reading of the book i usually don't have to explain what a multiverse is people already get that so we can kind of move straight into a particular story so Mm -hmm. yeah it's hugely popular at the moment also for me like i love multiverse stuff i will read all the (laughs) anything with that theme i absolutely love it whether it's alternative worlds or or not um but i I don't know why you, you see these trends. I I don't know what kind of psychological need it's answering. It it could be something purely like curiosity. So it could be that, you know, particularly during lockdown when everyone's really bored, that you're thinking, what if, <laughs> you know, what if COVID had not happened? What would I be doing right now? And maybe mm. people are thinking a little bit like that. Um, but you know, I, I'm not a scholar of multiverse literature. And so for all I know, this has been going on, <laughs> um, for, for longer than I suspect, like in my head, it's, it's the past few years where this trend has been happening, but mm-hmm. I, I could be completely wrong about that. I, I feel like I'm, I'm out, out of the loop with that, with that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, it could be. But I mean, generally speaking, right, a book speaks to you when it speaks to you like a like a friend almost. Or, you know, sometimes in the case of uh, mm. it's like a recent book that had lots of like cannibalism in and, and, and stuff that kind of spoke to me a bit like an enemy. But <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like when, it, when something touches you psychologically, that that's 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 when you keep like reading it. Right. So right. I I just. You know, I I think it's something like that, and I'm not. I don't know if it's a trend or whether we can group individuals into seeking something like this. It could also be like the very simple answer that multiverse stuff is just really fun. Sure, like it's just so fun. Or like, I mean, yeah. Or like, if we're gonna go like back into history, like Philip K. Dick and Man in the High Castle, you know, um, parallel world stuff. Is, <laughs> been happening in in the background yeah much much less fun but probably quite fun to write i imagine sure um, yeah yeah for sure and so right. and i'm um, kind of fascinating right like absolutely fascinating like i remember devouring that book um, when i discovered mm. it um and then being really really upset by the tv show <laughs> yeah the show um, was hard to watch right it wasn't just me the show was really really bad like it was really so boring. slow yeah. I was just I I I was unbelievably bored. Yeah, I was unbelievably bored, and I was like, "How is this possible when the book is so so good?" Uh, I think part of it is that once you lose Philip K. Dick as a narrator, you lose the thing that makes it good. Right? Yeah, and I think it's very hard to capture his very dry comedy. I think like a Scanner Darkly is my favorite Philip K. Dick adaptation mm-hmm. because it does the best job of maintaining 
his like very dark sense of humor. Um, but this raises, I think, you know, like a couple of interesting points about the yeah. history of the multiverse theory kind of stuff, which is, I agree with you. It's been a, like a consistently growing thing in the modern world as a like mechanism for people to like consider alternate histories and, um, you know, it can be fun, but also like significantly impactful. Um, and then there's probably the added effects of like, it just happens to be the case that shows like Rick and Morty have gotten very popular and are heavily centered on multiverse stuff. And so like that brings people along to yeah. the concept. Um, but like, I think this raises something that I want to ask you about since we were talking about gender as well earlier, multiverse in particular, you know, the, the people who sort of dominated it have been, you know, Lewis, obviously the, the original sort of philosophical multiverser that gets picked up culturally, people like Phil K. Dick, Rick and Morty, there's a very sort of masculine mm -hmm. vibe to what's been written about multiverse a lot of the time. Um, and I guess I wonder if you feel like there are tropes in how we think about multiverse that are gendered or that like you are trying to sort of de-gender as you're, you're working with this. I know you're not sort of actively thinking about it that way, but um are, are there parts of like our understanding of multiverse that have still gotten caught up in sort of gendered norms and in, in weird ways? I mean, there probably will be um, just because of, you know, writers of people and, and, and that kind of stuff just generally comes into your work, whether you, you know, to some extent, like the way that you understand gender is going to have an impact if you write about, um, gender in in fiction right but that's why Asimov is <laughs> so so problematic now because we're like oh dear <laughs> mm. that must be a reflection on how he was understanding women also that that's kind of what you read into it right and I don't know I don't I I honestly have no idea if 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 that's something that is um has particular like mm. has a particular like trope within it i think there's um i'm trying to i'm trying to remember her name um i think it's mika johnson and she wrote a book uh, um, mika jemison or no on on the multiverse uh mika johnson i'm not sure i know that one no not km jemison um it's oh i read it like last year and I basically inhaled it. It was really good. Uh huh. Um, I can't find it. I'm so annoyed that I can't find it. Mm. Um, I'll have to like find it after after we chat and then send you like a link or something. Sure, including um, the show notes. Because it is, yeah, yeah, in the show notes because it, it's it's a really really good book. It, it's probably somewhere in my flat and I can't find it because everything is covered in books. Um. <laughs> um but yeah, and that that was that was a that was a that was a really really good um, novel. Like main characters um, shifting through different periods of time in a really nice kind of clever way. Um, it it was it was really really good. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, one I mean one thing that you notice not just in like multiverse stories but generally across science fiction right the thing that i notice the most is that the main character is usually um um some kind of straight guy um right or a representation of it that's usually what happens um so i don't think that would be unique to any kind of multiverse story 
I think that that is unique to, um, mm. well, not even unique to science fiction, right? It's <laughs> it's a yeah. thing that just happens. So, um, there's one. There's one sort of example of this I'm curious about, and I, it's sort of one where I don't know if it is gendered or if it is just humans. It may just be humans. Um, there's sort of mm -hmm. a sense in which at least a lot of the modern Rick and uh, like, like the modern multiverse stuff like Rick and Morty has a very like nihilistic existentialist kind of energy to it where it's sort of really playing up the insignificance not you know like the way that when we first sort of got a sense of how big our universe was there was a sense of like insignificance it like is doubling that a million times over and like all of none of your choices matter kind of vibe to it um and i wonder how much of that is like the current state of men in particular struggling with a sense of meaning in the modern world or if it's just like everybody struggling with a sense of meaning under late stage capitalism or maybe a mix, but some sort of stuff like that, where I'm curious, do you feel like your work is heavily sort of filled with that kind of anxiety as well? Or do you feel like you have a more optimistic feel to your engagement with the multiverse? Yeah. So I think that, I think like, so yeah, Rick and Morty, I think you're, you're right that it's kind of like, just kind of existential horror. Um, particularly in the first season when they have to abandon like the first world that Morty is mm -hmm. in. And, yeah. And it's kind of, it's really depressing, <laughs> but also really bizarrely funny. Um, and I think that, I think that that speaks to a kind of angst or kind of general hopelessness that people have anyway. Um, so like not, not, you know, in terms of, um, some of the stuff that Rick and Morty might be dealing with but in terms of say the world's response to climate change I think everyone currently feels despair <laughs> and there mm. are a few people who maybe don't but I think the majority of people are just kind of despairing at, at, at this point um particularly when you see like news reports uh, I think I saw one the other day saying that we were going to go over the 1.5 thresholds um, I'm pretty sure the 1.5 threshold was something un like um, absolutely outrageous <laughs> like 10 mm -hmm. years ago and now that's the new normal and we're still going to go above that and I I guess in the in the book itself I do have one story that kind of speaks to um, that kind of direct anxiety about climate change um, so the, the sound does mm -hmm. this yeah. um, where the plants um, come alive and, and start screaming. The better version of the <laughs> um, happening. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's, I, you know, that, that just is my anxiety um, in that, in that story. Um, and I usually introduce it at readings as something that is depressing. And someone came up to me after one of the readings and said, that's not actually depressing. That's really uplifting because, you know, I don't want to say too much, but it's not that bad towards the end um and i actually told them which is probably not very comforting i said yeah but it's depressing in the sense that we don't have that kind of uplifting end like <laughs> we're, mm -hmm. we're in the middle of the story right now and it and it and it might be horrible and that, that's just like yeah and i think that that's the one that speaks the most to kind of climate change anxiety i think that um some of the other stories kind of 
don't speak to that exactly, but they kind of have a similar tone in that weird stuff happens and you just have to get on with that. <laughs> like it's yeah. like there's the, there's not no, I like that about do. them. So again, it's got maybe got that kind of it's got that existential like kind of confronting your facticity or something that you're talking to uh, what are the existentialists um where you're kind of confronting just the kind of concrete facts about your life um and sometimes those concrete facts are just absolutely you know <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and that that tone i think flows through ev every one of the stories i think and i love that because sort of the other part of the like existentialist nihilist dialogue is the absurdists and i i think the multiverse is a great space for playing in the absurd and i think you've got a couple of stories that like one of my favorites for example is the crab world obviously um and, and i, I want to mention um i want to talk a little bit about specifics of some of your content here so like spoilers on this material please go pause and like read the thing and like then come back and listen to the rest of this because i want to dive yeah, into some of yeah. some of the details here but um one of my favorites is definitely okay cool crab world uh yeah for sure where like first <laughs> of all this feels like a very deliberate joke about carcination i i hope that's what you're going for here that sort of idea that like all, on a long enough timeline all things tend towards crab um but i like there's a line in there that killed me where um your your protagonist <laughs> who's jumping through all these worlds says sort of my god in response to like a philip k dickie and almost like naked lunch sound and the, the crabs respond yes he too is a crab um you know that kind of absurdism where it's like yeah. <laughs> on a big enough scale all of the silly things become real right everything in salvador dolly's mind becomes real um and that that helps a little bit it takes the edge off almost right yeah, yeah. I, I tried to pace the, the stories that were like that as well, um, like within uh, like within the collection in, in a certain way. So I, I like tried to structure it so that there would be, you know, a long story, a medium story, and then really surreal thing. And then, yeah, so it wasn't all in one go. Mm. Um, but yeah, the crab story. I'm so glad you said that. Lots of people like the crab story. <laughs> it gets it usually gets a, a good laugh. Um, um, it's also the story that my partner told me not to put in the book. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Do you hold that yeah, over them? Do you make fun of them like, about that no, sometimes? It's too good. I'm putting in my craft story. <laughs> do, you, do you like go to the like fancy I dinners where you're going to give a talk them. and you're like, mm, maybe I'll order the crab? <laughs> I mean, if I weren't vegetarian, <laughs> then, right, then right. I, could, I could probably rub it in more. Oh, the crabs aren't sentient. <laughs> they're they're I, low I enough down the beating. chain, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, my partner's the same person who says that mussels are basically a vegetable, so it's fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm I have, just a, I have like, an, a, um, a, yeah, an animal ethicist who will um, back them up on that, so, or they'll back them up on that for sure. Yeah, no central nervous system or something, and that's crucial um i i honestly mussels are just disgusting looking i just can't i just don't want to eat <laughs> like this i'm not mm. sure about the ethics or how muddy it gets at that point but i'm just like no but like yeah he was like don't pull it because don't pull the crab story in and i was like i'm definitely gonna put this in and at the last reading i was at there was someone who'd been to a previous reading 
and he started um when we were all in the pub after starting uh started chanting crab story at me so <laughs> mm. i think it has a good a good Very crab people i'm, I'm really you know. i'm really sad to tell you that it didn't have the um you know everything tends um, towards being a crab shaped thing i did not have that in my head I actually that's, didn't that's know that when I was writing it. <laughs> to- totally okay um, with it not being intentional. Um, that's what I'm it so sorry. creates. A- no, I mean, like, I love, I love when people make art that doesn't intend to do something, and then later you find out that, like, for one person, it was like, "Hey, do you know there's a whole scientific study of the idea that everything evolves towards crabs on a long enough timeline?" Um, because it's such a great. It's it's also like a very much yeah, like the it was Rick and so Morty, good. Like, like I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I I like I remember like putting like putting a story on my Facebook and there was someone going, "Oh, is this based on um the the crab thing?" And I was like, "Wait, what?" And I discovered this whole thing um mm, like brand new right. and it was amazing. Just I was like, like "Oh my god, this is this is really good. I really wish I could claim that that's the inspiration, but it's not. I just wanted to see what a world made of crabs would be like <laughs> or maybe it's the case that like deep deep in your dna like that crab part of you is like you know embrace tradition and return to crabs um i was also going to add that it reminded me a lot of the yeah. like rick and crab morty <laughs> cob world episode where like everything is corn on the cob even like a molecular level um but i also love the way that you brought it back in oh really the, i've not seen after- that but that sounds amazing <laughs> oh yeah definitely a great episode um you brought it back in the in like one of the most meta parts of the book where you have your main character show up in your living room and, and like get pissed off at you about the crab world, which was super funny to me. Um, and the way that you like resolve <laughs> that by essentially just writing them back into the story and continuing on. Um, it, it made me sort of wonder, like a lot of the multiverse stuff lends itself to very meta, you know, like self-referential kind of humor in this way which i love i also and i think like allows for increasingly dense like mimetic content but i also wonder how much like alongside irony poisoning this kind of ultra meta poisoned worldview like is making it harder for us to like be attached to things on like a first order level kind of way or something i don't know i don't know if you if you deal with like that kind of Mm. an existential vertigo when you're playing with these kind of meta conversations like that um does that come to mind at all for you or or sort of vibe with anything that you experience when you're working through those like multi 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 level feedback jokes yeah so i i think that i had i've like just written the the crab one um and i actually think it was my partner who said something about it like what if it went even more meta i'm sure there was something like this but i think it was just Mm -hmm. like an experiment of mine going oh this would be funny (laughs) and then it made me laugh so i thought i'll see if my publisher will put this in in the book as well um i don't i don't know that i have like any kind of qualms or concerns about being too meta in that respect but i think that's because i only allowed one story to do that Mm. um i don't think i could have kept a a good handle on everything if it had been you know if if my character had been you know 
in and out of lots of different levels of kind of versions of meta worlds or something i think that would just get too too complicated mm -hmm. but yeah like, i mm. i i honestly just wrote it and, and did it because it was it was funny <laughs> fair enough i bring it up because like i've been doing a bunch of stuff around high weirdness <laughs> where i think like the multiverse stuff is tied into that and like the idea of you know psychedelics and all these things breaking us through to different like worlds and dimensions um and sort of thinking that that stuff is very valuable for transgressive reasoning and and thinking but that it is potentially kind of emotionally alienating sometimes um and that also like i don't know that just like i think sometimes what i see is in the other stuff that i do around internet conspiracism there's a weird like meta permission mm. structure where it's like oh no we're just doing a whole big fun meta game so it's like totally fine to make jokes about like you know and frank never existed because you're really just doing a shtick about you know truth or something right i see i see so i think that i mean i don't know i suppose it, it could end up having kind of serious kind of ethical kind of implications if what you're doing as a joke is not just maybe this silly internal kind of imaginary world if you're if you start removing things from the world and, and that becomes um, what you're doing I, I think there's always a thing with humor in that if you're punching down there's maybe something a little bit suspect of that rather than if you're kind of punching up. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think I would ever have a story that would have that level of historical detail because I just don't write that way, I suppose. Um, so I'm never going to do a, a Philip K. Dick book where you know, the Nazis won and let's see what happened. Like, that's not the kind <laughs> of multiverse that I suppose I'd be interested in. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, that there are going to be different approaches to this. There are going to be different ways of looking at um, how meta we can go and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, but in terms of myself, I don't think I'll encounter that honestly i think the worlds will just get weirder and maybe further from life mm. rather than rather than closer yeah it reminds me again i keep coming back to rick and morty because they do so much multiverse stuff but they have a train narrative episode that is like meta like deliberately like trying to find that wall of like too meta um but let me let me switch gears and talk a little bit about some of those details again in your stories <laughs> there's one like mechanism you build into your world that i think is really cool and i haven't seen in other places but i think like it's reminiscent of certain things in fantasy actually about so so you have these world doors and that's how people get through the multiverse and the world mm -hmm. doors are people i guess is the, like in the soil and green sense of the, like the, they are people uh if that if i if i read that correctly and i'm i'm curious mm. sort of what motivated yeah, you yeah, yeah, that's right. motivated you to make them people and like how did that shift things for you philosophically and narratively when that became part of like one of the big pieces of this world yeah so 
I remember, so I, I started writing at Possible Worlds, like the, the title story, as um, a kind of online serial. Like it wasn't originally intended for a book. So it was like on, you know, like Kofi and like blog posts, like, yeah, um, which I tweet out, people would like enough. So that kept me writing them. Um, and so it started off with me writing like a, a maybe a part one and then, you know, part two would be like another paragraph, you know, and, and it developed that way. So when I was finally turning it into a longer story and extending it, that's when I really had to think about the kind of mechanisms that were like coming into this. Um, and it was, it was, um, my partner's just stuck into the room <laughs> um it, it was um it was it was quite hard trying to trying to like figure it out I think that when when we started to when it got to the scene where um where they were going to like the kind of headquarters um that's when I started to think like narratively okay you know what's going on here with these beings what is this kind of um like larger um kind of um, uh, conspiracy almost in the background of, of the story um and i realized that world doors were actually people kind of in real time so to speak like the, the first draft mm -hmm. told me what they were basically um, and then as I was extending the story, I, you know, cut and fiddled with it. So you feel like you're discovering these worlds rather than creating them? Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. Um, so like I'll, an image will like pop into my head and I'll think, oh, that's kind of cool. I'll, I'll write that down. Or like a few, like, like maybe like a cool sounding sentence. Um, and I'll mm -hmm. write that down and see where that goes. Um, but largely, yeah, it's just me like creating as I write. <laughs> Um, it's in it's the editing that makes things like fit together and, and so on but yeah it's largely like a discovery rather than me kind of going okay this will happen at this point mm. i feel like that's very much like when i read philip k dick i get the vibe that like he had like 10 minute windows into a bunch of different alternate universe kind of thing um and it definitely it, it has that kind of feel to mm. it and i love that it allows for these kind of like little vignettes um in, in the way and yet you can also have a little bit of coherence throughout with your sort of um central narrative um and i it's hard i feel like when i when i talk to authors i want to talk to them about like what like the philosophical meanings and symbolism but i think authors are often sort of averse to diving into it because they don't want to like tell their audience oh you have to interpret it this way or that way maybe i'm not sure what often is the resistance so like it's very interesting mm -hmm. to me to imagine the world doors as persons and like what does that mean is that about like a comment about how the multiverse is really you know the fact that we as conscious beings perceive reality and you know like we are the gates to all of reality because we are the ones that are doing the perceiving of it um is it that like you know what you realize is that it's a metaphor for like how the real resources human attention and like um we, we extract content from people and then like feed it to other people as a consumer product and so like we become the product in this way 
but I know it's hard to get a question that like that and be so, like, well, so cool. I don't know. I don't want to tell people <laughs> what to think, but yeah. Right. Like, no, that's, that's like a really, really awesome way of thinking about it. I, yeah. Like, I mean, as a philosopher, that really appeals to me, right? Cause that's, yeah, there's kind of like a strange kind of Barclay idealism like going on. Um, right. I think exactly. That, right. I think that probably what was going on, what was going on in my head was maybe, again like connecting to the kind of existential kind of dread vibe um is that it made total sense to me that um you know that a big like you know company probably a big capitalist one in some world at some point decided that they would use people by completely obliterating their being and they just use them for their function mm. only. I, I think that that's probably the level I was coming from. So I don't think I was doing anything like consciously in terms of metaphysics, although I really do like that interpretation now that you've said it. Um, but I think that I was trying to, I, I think that ultimately it was kind of a um, people as objects or people right. as just their function and not who they are. Um, right well yeah it makes sense like the artist is a world um, door right you're a world um, door and you show us a bunch of different worlds but like your visions become mm. a a product that people are like that becomes locked in and commodified and then people can travel to it for a price kind of thing Mm. yeah and then it's i mean i I suppose but it's kind of like a it's also that people can read things very differently um i mean like like you just have so I, I think that's something I think that when you when you make something and you put it out into the world it, it's this thing that's suddenly separate from you um mm-hmm. it's it's very very unnerving um because you take something that you've been thinking about for like a year and you put it out in the world and people people will think about it and it's both lovely and and awful <laughs> at the same time sure. um but I, I think that yeah, I think that probably, like in the back of my head, there was this kind of, um, kind of idea that of how we understand people as means to an end. So it was probably going more in a kind of ethical Kantian kind of route than it was mm-hmm. in metaphysics. But again, like I said, I really like that, and now that you said that interpretation can completely see that um Mm, yeah so yeah that's just really cool (laughs) and i think you know interpretations are never like exhaustive right there can always be a bunch of layered and sometimes even even inconsistent interpretations and it doesn't matter if the author intended one or not like that's less important i think than like can you support it through the like the, the text or something um we're getting a little short on time and there's a couple of them that i Mm. Um, wanted to ask you about in particular I'll talk a little bit about more in particular since they have a specific kind of philosophical history to them and then maybe I'll torture you in the VIP with asking some of your preferred of your favorite children um, but one of them I wanted to ask about was chapter three the spaceship of <laughs> okay. Theseus um, the ship of Theseus being sort oh, of yeah. one of the most famous philosophical thought experiments where the ship slowly gets, you know, replaced with parts and it survives and it comes up a million different places in science fiction with transporters and all that kind of thing. I was struck by how your story, your mm-hmm. version of the ship of Theseus is very, very dark because as I read it, 
you have a sentient spaceship <laughs> that gets slowly replaced by parts and when it gets there to the new planet it's like it's like a you know like a world seed kind of planet ship and you get there and the people get off of it and instead of mm. like getting to fly anymore it ends up in a, like a museum next to its parts and like it's this horrifying almost cronenbergian like you know it asks people what it is at this point and everybody kind of looks away from it um did you mean for that to be incredibly yeah. dark and like where were you what were you sort of like what was driving you to take it in that very dark kind of direction that way um again i think that i think with the space of theseus like one of one of the things that i wanted to to think about was in terms of um, again, like uh, identity, sentience, and interaction between different beings in the world. Um, so I, I remember I wrote out that story. That that's almost a first draft story. In fact, I I, I don't think it it barely had um, any kind of like edit. And structurally, it's it was the same um, from when I wrote it on the page. Um, I don't know how much I intended it to be deeply, deeply dark, <laughs> um, mm. but. I know that it very much is. Um, and I think that I, I you know, I, I, <laughs> I, there's, I don't know what to say to it because it's kind of like, yeah, I, I, I guess my brain was kind of thinking, okay, but what if this object is being replaced with sentient? And that's one way of thinking about the original thought experiment in the first place since human beings have their cells replaced and, and so on. Um, and yeah. I started to think about the kind of difference between how we might treat something that's sentient, that's, you know, not like of human biology or whatever. And so yeah. it, it had all, all of those kind of like ethical identity, kind of philosophical questions. And I guess my brain goes dark when it starts to uh, uh, like ask that kind of stuff. It's like a ship of Theseus. It's like a starship version of the giving tree is what I'm realizing as I'm thinking through like what's so emotionally devastating about it is this, this sort of like this ship like cheerfully saved these people and brought them to a new planet and then they like they put it in a museum and don't respect that it wants to like be out in space like floating around being you know happy happily itself it also reminded me in another one of the chapters at least you I, I think allude to Buddhism with a, a quote about like a signpost posting, you know, pointing to the park versus the park itself. Um, this reminded me a lot of a Taoist mm -hmm. um, story that I often think of, which is the turtle, you know, where the, like the guy from the court comes to the Taoist sage and asks him if he wants to come be an expert in the court. And he asks the guy if there's like a giant turtle that is all wrapped in sheets and things. And, you know, is like trotted out around on, in parade and stuff. And he, he asks him if that turtle would be happier sort of wiggling around in the mud. Um, and the guy says, yeah, anything probably would be. And he says, well, then leave me to like wiggle around in the mud. Um, and that kind of had this vibe of like, you know, we take these things that we claim to be precious or valuable to us and like put them on display rather than letting them be sort of themselves in these or organic kind of ways. Um, I, guess, I wonder how much, things like buddhism Taoism, those kind of non-western philosophies are a part of how you sort of think about these stories yeah so that's yeah that's a really good question um when i was when i was younger i was um 
deeply into like Buddhist philosophy um, a good few years where I was like studying it a lot and then eventually did something on it at university and um, I think yeah I think like Buddhist teachings are probably still with me to some extent Taoism I'm not au fait with so the turtle story I didn't know that until you just said it but I really like the similarities between it um I would say that kind of again I think one of the main things that interests me like um and it comes out in the stories is the question of like personhood and identity and I think that that also relates to my interest in in Buddhism it just relates to my interest in ethics as well um Mm. so if you're not technically a person you're not morally responsible and you know stuff like that interests me so mm-hmm. it's yeah i i think maybe that was somewhere in the background um i don't think i was consciously thinking of it though i think that i was just thinking okay what if the spaceship of theseus uh, what if well what if the ship were sentient what would happen then mm-hmm. um and i suppose it's kind of a, a reflection of generally you know in our world if people don't see you as human then they don't treat you as a person um and that has varying levels of degrees depending on you know which groups you're looking at and so on um so i think i was kind of maybe honing in on on that a little bit um Mm -hmm. but it's also yeah um it's also just incredibly bleak i like to think right that like an extended version of that story would have someone who maybe like a child would pick up the spaceship well, yeah it's, and it's almost got <laughs> like, like omelas vibes right like um, this this happy civilization exists because of the suffering of this one spaceship you know yeah it's a, yeah yeah i mean yeah so it's like there, there could be like a more helpful like full full version of it um which would be mm. really cool to explore i think there's a few stories like that um in the collection where um mm-hmm. I, you know i could have if i hadn't have had an an external deadline i would have just been fiddling with them and expanding them for forever um but yeah it is uh, right. horribly bleak but it also speaks to you know certain states of the world so yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Before we're out of time, uh, another one that is also based on a big sci-fi thing and is related in some ways in terms of it's not quite as bleak, but it's it's darker even than the normal versions. So, in chapter five, you do Mary in the colorless room, um, and you have a weird twist on it that oh, is yeah, interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure I fully even follow it. it. It's sort of like Mary in the colorless room, but like she doesn't have any kind of sensation or at all or something potentially and then they like build a suit for her so that she can go out and experience the world but she knows that it's it's still wrong or not accurate or something um you know that i love this piece i'm curious yeah sort of like what are we going for here is this is like mary an ai that's getting an embodied consciousness for the first time is it like uh you know like someone who who just genuinely has no inner sensations until they're allowed out of this whatever space they're in oh i like the idea of mary being ai i hadn't thought of that <laughs> that's cool do you know I what know, i mean I, where I yeah it reads like she's a learner and then she touches I, the world yeah 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 yeah, yeah. she's like 
allergic to all of the outside world so things have to be brought in you know when you know when you're allergic to stuff like you can get um desensitized to it sometimes so the mm -hmm. the idea is that they're basically doing that so she's slowly introduced to to these different things um and they realize um her captors realize that um actually they need to bring her into the outside world to ultimately you know test um yeah. how desensitized she really is um the reason i thought ai so that, that's, was basically that's generally the idea uh Sorry, the reason I thought AI was, I think, probably because I was thinking of Ex Machina, which the movie about, um, you know, the AI box problem and, and like a, a conscious AI also uses Mary in the Colorless Room very heavily mm. as like a metaphor for AI consciousness. Um, and that sort of you had a joke in there about things like middle sized dry goods, um, you know, which is a great philosophical throwaway <laughs> line. Um but like, yeah, I, I was sort of trying to make sense of what it, how it would be for someone to be allergic to the world in the in the way that you kind of describe it in there initially, um, and I think that's probably why I went in that direction. Yeah, so I I think I I think the part of it is also um, sometimes we shouldn't trust what our main characters are telling us. Um, I think the one thing she realizes towards the end of that story is maybe she's not allergic to the world at all. Mm -hmm. um, that it's just being filtered through um, with, uh, by her captors, but you know that, that doesn't mean that actually they're right and they're doing the right thing. So I kind of wanted like this kind of... Because Mary's room is like... I always thought of it as a weird kind of prisoner situation, so I guess, I oh, guess yeah, that's for kind sure. of coming through. It's kind of like this poor person <laughs> it's like yeah. to die like seeing colors like or certain colors and yeah so i think that that was also like going through the current of the of the story and i kind of left it ambiguous at the end as to what happens when she kind of runs runs away yeah and um, i love so we don't actually get to find out whether whether she dies from just running away or whether she's actually free now Mm-hmm. Well, no, I really love, again, because you do make the Buddhist reference there, that there's a lot of layers to this, right? That this could be, like, society constraining your perception of things, or it could just be a comment on, like, how we're all trapped in these limited, you know, meat suits that, like, have limited perceptual apparatus and that, like, we can't trust our own perceptions, mm -hmm. right? Or we can't even trust maybe our, your own, our own minds to represent things to us. So there's, like, so many like because you let it be ambiguous you can get kind of every layer of the cartesian problem at, at like at play at the same time in this hypothetical um there's one line in there that stood out stuck out to me as like a kind of philosophical fuck you that i wanted to point out um when when mary is saying that like she knows <laughs> that like something is wrong that like they're, they're lying to her she has a comment about like she knows the gorgeous 625 to 700 nanometers that is actually red or something like that um yeah. and i think that like this you know like is a really fun way of highlighting the problem of like what is color which is something that I, a friend of mine who's a non-philosopher but like was pissed off because no one would have this conversation with him about this where you know like <laughs> what the fuck actually yeah. is color is it the nanometers 
does it make any sense to say that nanometers could ever be gorgeous or not right like there's a there's a conflict between the romantic quality of the color and the like the classical quality of the nanometers so um how do you how do you feel about this like as a philosopher how do you parse these problems of like consciousness and reality in this way yeah so i guess that like with with um i think that one thing one thing i think that i was trying to get out with with mary saying that one that's actually accurate because my my friend's um partner is uh, a neuroscientist and she was like like she read a version of the story where I got it wrong and she was like no <laughs> these are the these are the nanometers so I was like okay cool mm-hmm, that's the mm-hmm. only part of hard science fiction in the whole in the whole collection <laughs> uh, where it's actually accurate um, like <laughs> like that's it like <laughs> yeah um but I I think that it was I mean one thing one thing maybe is that you know Mary seems to still have aesthetic appreciation, even even when she's talking in terms of kind of just propositions. Um, I always find that interesting. So when um, you know people who talk about not having a mind's eye, um, that I wonder mm. how far this kind of nanometer measurement stuff might be might be far for you know thinking about the gloriousness of blue or whatever. Um, in terms uh-huh. of in terms of um, like like philosophical struggles on color and consciousness i mean definitely like throughout the book consciousness is a big deal um and identity like linked with it um what color is is always frustrated me as as well um um, Mm -hmm. i i am not particularly satisfied by any of the accounts um and i find it endlessly kind of fascinating that we can detect color um i also i I, I, like one thing one thing that also kind of puzzles me maybe disturbs me a little bit is that we could be recognizing a shade that is similar to us and that's why we can continuously indicate oh that's yellow but you might actually be seeing something very different to me it's just that Mm -hmm. what you see occurs with a much with a much habit as what i see occurs that freaks me out. So that, that so that kept, that kind of stuff interests me for sure. So it was quite nice having someone like kind of almost methodically be introduced to that part of the world. Whereas you know when when you're a kid, you're just kind of thrown into it. I very much appreciate, despite you know so many years of culture using the "what if red is the same," you know, for you as it is for me, as like a punchline to make fun of like undergraduate stoner philosophy. That like you're still willing to acknowledge that it it is a problem and it's one that messes with you, and that's fine and that's good, and we should be, you know, okay with the fact that it fucks with us that this is a thing. Um, and I think I'd love to, uh, we're at time and I need to torture you for the main segment. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about color, um, <laughs> in the VIP. Um, but unfortunately this means it is now okay. time for the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things and you're going to tell me of these things simply, are they real or not real? You don't have to explain what you mean by real. You don't get to hedge. Okay. It's just real or not real. Okay. Do you understand? <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> yeah. 
yes it's it's much worse than you think it is so yeah. brace yourself um first of all uh, yeah i'm already anticipating the worst <laughs> yeah so first of all as a philosopher with some familiarity with buddhism i'm, I'm contractually obligated to ask you do you think that anything is real yeah <laughs> okay am great. i just giving so one word fine. answers yes yes exactly just one word answers just fire it off you know okay so with then, as much yeah. you know suffering as, as has to happen in between um okay so let's find out what if anything is real so first of all bodies real or not real i'm gonna say real okay minds mm. and i'm not allowed to hedge <laughs> Nope. I think binds our bodies. So, yeah. Real. Okay. Free will. <sighs> yes. <laughs> okay. Luck. Oh, God. Do you mean luck as in... I can't like, tell you. That's the other ambiguity of all of this. <laughs> Do you mean like... Oh my god, this is horrible. Yes. <laughs> it's like philosophy torture. Yes. Um, <laughs> That's what it was built for. Does luck exist in uh, does it exist? Um uh as someone who is very lucky and it's really, really creepy, I'm also gonna say no because I don't want the world to be magical. <laughs> Not in that way anyway. <laughs> okay. Demons. No, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, uh, afterlives. No. <laughs> oh, probably not. No. Okay. Truth. Yeah. Okay. Beauty. Yeah. Justice. Hmm. I'm going to say yes. Oh, you're really suffering on that one. Uh, and finally, consistent. hope. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, as a feeling. Okay. You've survived. How do you feel? Yeah. <laughs> I feel awful. Like I've been hit in the face. <laughs> Like, <laughs> not being able to explain why I'm saying that is possibly one of the worst things that, like you can do to a philosopher. That was horrible. I love after except for the demon one. That was the of only this. one. Yeah, after 150 episodes, it's still just the absolute oh best, most efficient way to torture philosophers. So, thank you for yes, the demon one is a gimme for you. Um, <laughs> But otherwise, I appreciate your suffering and we'll add it to our um, collective pile. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> so before we get over to the main thing, Rachel, do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find you and your work? Uh, yeah. So I am on I'm basically on every social media except for threads because they don't allow it in the EU. <laughs> so um, <laughs> if you just. It, yeah basically that 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 is the case and i always use like my my full name so if you just type in twitter to google rachel handley 
Instagram, Rachel Hundley, you know, you you will find me very, very easily. I'm super searchable. (laughs) Okay, so all over the possible worlds. Um, So thank you, Rachel, for this great chat. I appreciate it. Um, And if folks want to hear a little bit more, they could come join us over on Patreon and hang out for a little bit of VIP. Um, But otherwise, thank you all so much for listening. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our new monthly voidling, Zombie Skincare. And as always, I would like to thank our top-level patrons who, I must reiterate, get basically no additional benefits. They are really just supporting this show out of the utter voidiness of their hearts. Our Archduke our Archon-level patrons uh, give to Modest Needs, then visit deepfakestop.com. Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, and Fuck the Armchair Death Cult Known as Humanism, Atheist for Life. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out my wonderful editor Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how general your intelligence, you are the void, and the void is you.